This is The Weekender on Y95, brought to you by Eris Yarmouth. Good morning and welcome to The Weekender on Y95, brought to you by Eris Yarmouth, your one-stop healthy home center. I'm Kevin Northup. The Weekender for Saturday, July 30th, 2022. Coming up this hour, less than a month remains until training camp for the Yarmouth Junior A Mariners. The team has added exciting new players to the roster and plan to have an improved game day experience for fans. We chat with assistant coach and co-owner Jared Purdy. Jacob Postlewaite speaks with whale-watching guide and photographer with Mariner Cruises, Amy Tudor, about a whale recently spotted off Port Maitland Beach and about whale-watching in our area. And Ben Holmes talks to drummer from the band Canned Heat, Fido De La Pera, on their tour and performing at Woodstock 69. The Weekender returns in a moment on Y95. Welcome back to The Weekender on Y95. I'm Kevin Northup. We are in late July, but training camp is coming soon for the Yarmouth Junior A Mariners. So much on the go, and of course, uh, the big news happened uh, last month where it was announced the team had been sold and Mitch Bonner selling the team to uh, Lori Barron, uh, John Murphy, Jared Purdy, and Alex Pink uh, for uh, local guys here, and three are on the coaching staff. And Jared Purdy, one of those coaches and owners, is with us in studio this morning to talk about uh, all the changes uh, that are coming up for the season and uh, lots on season tickets and maybe some ticket packaging, sponsorship. There's so much going on with the Mariners that we're going to cover uh, right now. So if you want to know about uh, what's happening with Yarmouth, you've uh, come to the right place. Jared, thanks for being here once again. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Appreciate it. So obviously it's been a very exciting time for the Mariners. And first of all, I want to touch on uh, the MHL draft that was held a couple of weeks ago. Um, I was there taking it in, and it was great to, to see how it worked. And uh, I think eight or nine new players coming into the organization now. So what's that excitement level like for, for you and your coaching staff uh, as you head to training camp with some new bodies able to come in? Yeah, it's always it's always exciting to to replenish the roster, have some have some kids come into the organization. Um, first and foremost, I was I was obviously very excited to see our two territorial picks, uh, two kids from Yarmouth. So that's always a, an exciting piece. Uh, Sam Hope and Jared Pittman, both both a part of the Mariners organization, uh, both have played you know through the Yarmouth minor hockey system. Uh, families have been a part of the community for a lot of years, so we're really excited to have those two boys. Um, as always, our our scouting staff and, and Lori and John do their homework, um, so we were very happy with the players we picked up and the rounds we picked them up in. Um, it's it's definitely a roster this upcoming season that's going to be difficult to crack, which is a great thing. It, it'll be a training camp. We'll have some battles in it. There's no guaranteed spots, um, so we're looking forward to seeing our new kids come into town. Uh, meet their families, meet them uh, as people. But uh, overall, Kevin, we were pretty happy with the players we selected, and our, as always, our scouting staff did a great job. And uh, Jared Pittman and Sam Hope, like you mentioned, two two local kids, uh, one from uh, Plymouth, one from Tuscott. So I know those communities are certainly proud. And it was great to see their parents there too that night. And you know when they put the jersey on and got their picture taken, that's something. And I talked to both of them afterwards. That they said they've been you know dreaming of all their life is to play for the Yarmouth Mariners and play for their hometown team. So uh, just goes to show what that means to them. Yeah, it's it's exciting, and that's a big part of you know what the excitement is in town when you when you think of the Yarmouth Mariners and you see the kids in the stands. Uh, both of those players had had successful years with the South Shore Mustangs. Um, both have kind of come into their own, like you say. It's it's such a small community. It's tight knit. Uh, it's really funny. I was thinking when I saw the picture of Sam. His father Earl used to take me at the old rink and shoot pucks late at night when everybody was gone. Uh, I work with uh, Jared's father Jeff, so um, it's it's pretty exciting, and I'm and I'm really glad their excitement level matches ours. Um, both of them have some bright futures, and and hopefully for a few seasons that'll be in our uniform. Definitely, and uh, always that tie with minor hockey too, and that's something that the Mariners are. Uh, really committing to for this upcoming season, getting those minor hockey players uh, back in the rink. Uh, a mini Mariners, I believe it's going to be called. So bit of a rebranding uh, for minor hockey and for the Yarmouth Mariners there. Talk a bit about that and what's gone behind those, those decisions. Yeah, so for me, it, it, it was a personal piece for me too. Uh, both my girls, Lila and Callie, both both are in the minor hockey system. I've been always been blown away with the amount of you know, commitment we have from our community and surrounding communities 
the amount of volunteers that come out for minor hockey is, is mind boggling. So, um, we really wanted to connect with minor hockey. We wanted to connect with the development side of things. So a couple of things that we're doing, um, we do have, like you said, it's exciting. Uh, we're calling it the mini Mariners section. So at every home game, we're going to set aside 40 free tickets, um, for each of our minor hockey teams. So we'll work with minor hockey to have a rotation going there. So all of our, all of our teams, house teams, travel teams, uh, will get an opportunity to come to a home game, sit in the mini Mariners section, wear their jerseys. So we'll have tickets for the players, tickets for the coaches, and uh, for a parent or, or guardian to join them. And the other exciting piece that we're working on now, Kevin, is um, is that YM logo that we really want to get out in the community and we want to we want a brand. So um, one of the exciting things we're working on is is a rebrand with the rep teams, with the travel teams. So uh, we're working with Minor Hockey to to purchase all new rep jerseys for our teams, uh, and we're pretty proud that the YM logo will will be around, you know, Atlantic Canada for some teams. And uh, like you say, when you think of the Sam Hopes, the Jared Pittmans, uh, you think of the Ryan Semples and, and Caleb Woodrow's and Ben Charles's, um, you know, I, I really hope that the minor hockey kids see the Yarmouth Mariners as a destination for them, and uh, and I love that excitement. So I'm pretty excited about those 40 seats this year. I think it's going to be pretty loud. I think that will bring a lot more noise. Uh, the kids always, uh, you know, enjoy coming to the games for sure, and uh, maybe we can get them on the ice in the intermission to play a little uh, uh, play a little uh, game for the fans. That's always entertaining, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's uh, that's where we're hoping you come into play, yeah. Kevin. You've always got some great <laughs> ideas. But, no, it, one of the things about the games that we've talked a lot about is we want it to be a family experience. Going to a hockey game, for a lot of people, shouldn't just be about the game itself, right? This should be should be fun for the kids. So, to your point, we really want to see, you know, those Timbits players in the intermissions. We want to see some competitions. We want to see some games, some activities. Um, we want families to come to the game and not only enjoy a, an exciting hockey game, but we want you know, we want families enjoying it together and, and making it a family atmosphere there. And kind of when we first spoke, Kevin, it, it is really for me about community. Um, I'm really excited to, to have the community see themselves in the team, but also see themselves at the games, you know, and uh, I think part of the excitement I have is what those games will look like this year and, and having our players get involved too and, you know, having some Q&A and, and uh, having the community really see themselves as part of the team. So I'm excited about that. It's going to be a lot of fun, and uh, one of the changes that's uh, been made, of course, uh, we'll, we'll go over ticket prices in a second, sure. but uh, the start times are now 7 o'clock. They were 7.30, so that makes it a little bit easier, I think, for for families to to come out to a game because the 7.30 start time, you're, you're not usually out of there until 10 o'clock, a little more manageable for, for families with young children. Yeah, it was it was so interesting um, getting back involved with the team. We built it a couple of years ago, and as you mentioned, I was on the coaching staff last year, and you just learned a lot. That seven thirty start time, a half hour, is a big thing for some families. So, I mean, my my youngest. You know, I could see up in the stands, I'd cheat a little bit and look up and see how she was doing, and she's starting to tap out halfway <laughs> through the third. So um, we really thought the 7 p.m. start time would go better for, for most. Um, you know, number one with those with the young kids, um, getting them home a little earlier is important. But also, you know, for, for folks who are working and they're, they're in town, and like you say, we have so much support from the, the Plymouths and Wedgeports and Pumnicos and, and surrounding communities that, you know, if folks want to stay in town, that 7 p.m. works a little bit better for, for the workday ending. So we really think that, that that will help our families out and, and get kids in bed a little earlier. And, and obviously, for, for teams too, travel's such an underestimated part of this league. You know, when you've got even the Valley and so sure, but you think of Picto and Truro, uh, coming into town, it gets them home a little bit earlier and off the roads and home safer. So I think it works well. Works well for everybody. And uh, I know ticket prices are certainly uh, going to be, uh, you know, a little more appealing uh, for fans this year. Uh, some some price drops there. Can you go over some of that for us, Jared, and fans and uh, for fans and what they can expect for this year when they buy a ticket to a game? Absolutely. So uh, to be honest, Kevin, when we purchased the team, um, that was that was our first conversation we wanted to make this experience equitable and affordable um you know 
part of the being in Yarmouth and anybody who's been a part of hockey in Yarmouth, we, we our travel schedule looks a little different. We're, we're down at this end of the province. So, um, you know, cost and all those things come into play. But when we looked at our, our pricing, we looked, obviously, we did a scan of the league to see where we were at. Um, we, we had a conversation immediately around how can we how can we do this and make it work? You know, full disclosure, the other side of it is, you know, as a new ownership group, we have to be very careful in terms of making this work mm-hmm. um, from from a financial perspective. Uh, you know, th- the biggest target for us is is this team being in Yarmouth for years and years to come. That that's that's obviously the first key deliverable for us. Um, so then it led into a conversation about tickets um, significantly. Um, it, it is, believe it or not, about a fifteen thousand plus dollar commitment on our part as owners. Um, but again, I, I do think it makes it easier for our families, easier for our community and, and more affordable, especially when you look at that target audience of kids, right? Um, it makes it more affordable for, for that group. And that's ultimately uh, the group we love to see there. But uh, as well for the adults and the seniors, um, it makes that, that experience affordable. So we, we dropped the season ticket packages, you know, in, in most ways it's about in the $50 range um, per package. And at the home games, ticket at the gate, you know, when you look at that, that eight dollar price for for uh, eighteen and under that 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 is pretty attractive, um, especially and then for us uh, as an ownership group and, and I would like to to comment as well. We we are thought as an ownership group lowering the prices significantly would would be a way to to check those boxes. Um, you know our our season ticket holders from last year and. Um, years before that, we really and sincerely can't thank them enough. We know that their support through COVID meant everything, um, and their support over the years has meant everything. So, you know, we 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 wish that that didn't happen, but COVID unfortunately doesn't come with a with a manual or an owner's guide. So, we we wanted to do the best we could, and we thought just reducing the overall ticket price was the way to go. Um, but we're we're also interested to see how the year goes. We we want to see you know, uh, how many people come to the games. Obviously, uh, from a player standpoint, I hope that it's packed every single night. Um, that That's exciting, right? So um, we'll, we'll see how the year goes, and then we'll, we'll revisit those prices again at the end of this year. And our goal always will be to make this as accessible and equitable as possible. And getting those fans back in the rink, I, you know, this will certainly uh, entice a lot of people uh, to come to Mariner Center. And I know you've got a drive for 500 season ticket holders uh, right now, and and that's kind of the goal to start the season. How are how are things progressing there? Not too bad. Um, it's it is early in in summertime, as you know, with with family and kids, it's busy. People are are traveling and doing their thing, but uh, we're off to a decent start. Um, again, 500 was the number we thought that would be great, um, and it's again from an ownership standpoint, we're learning. I'm learning personally. You know, you want that group, but you also we have our sponsors that we'll talk about shortly, but we, you know, you want to have tickets available at the door as well for those folks that aren't season ticket holders. So, um, our goal is 500. The, the feedback from the community around the prices has been really good. So I think that will translate into more season ticket holders. Um, and, and, you know, the families that, you know, my wife and I talk to through, through the minor hockey system, we're getting a lot of feedback that they're looking forward to becoming season ticket holders. So, um, right now the feedback's good, Kevin. We're in the in the neighborhood of about a hundred sold already, so that's great. Um, but hopefully through the exhibition week and as the summer progresses, um, we'll get to uh, we'll get to that five hundred mark. And and again the the support in the community. And I'll say it a number of times. It's it's been overwhelming. It's unbelievable. And you mentioned the exhibition that's coming up next weekend. The Mariners will have a booth there in Arena Two. Yep. So uh, exhibition's coming up. Um, we'll have a booth. We, we plan to have, uh, so we were fortunate, we will be running uh, the 50-50 for the exhibition, um, and that will go towards, again, that minor hockey rebrand that we talked about earlier. Um, so our booth is, is mainly just to, to get some introductions done. We want to have kind of our new ownership group will be in and out of uh, the picture there. Our goal is to have a few players, a few of our local players come out and, uh, and be a part of that as well. And um, we'll be able to to guide folks to the box office. So the Mariner Center has been great. Um, the box office will be open. So if folks want to go purchase uh, season tickets there, we can certainly answer their questions. But mainly, it, Kevin, it's just to be out and about and, and chat to folks and hopefully chat to some fans. Um, and, and I'm obviously interested from, from my role in education. 
connecting with the communities first and foremost. So I'm, I'm looking forward to getting some feedback, uh, answering some questions, you know, all that, all that feedback's important because it helps, it helps us kind of mold our next steps. That feedback guides our next steps just to make this, this product as, uh, as successful, but also as equitable as possible. So we're really looking forward to being at the exhibition. And sponsorship is such a you know a big key of this and i know when you know when when you joined in and the four of you joined in and bought the team that was probably one of the first things you were thinking of what let's get some some really good sponsorship for this uh, first season so uh how are things progressing with uh, with the sponsors coming on to uh, to help the team out really well um i would have to say that's the part that really was inspiring for me um i can't get over the amount of support this community and our surrounding community gives us it's it really is unbelievable um you know just in getting to know the league and getting to know um you know seeing what happens around that table um obviously i'm biased but i i i know we have the biggest amount of support from the community in the league it's unbelievable so we are off to a great start sponsorship wise and i and i want to say too it talking to businesses it's 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 important not to forget that we're we're coming out of a global pandemic that we're you know still not fully out of yet. That was that was tough on businesses. So for businesses to come out and support us, to to purchase a sponsorship package, to express you know just how important the team is to the community, and and a lot of our businesses are long-standing businesses that have you know like us grown up in the community. So um, I really can't say it enough. The the amount of appreciation and gratitude we have to our sponsors. Uh, I really don't have the words to say just how important it's been. Um, so we're doing really well and um, we're, we're, we're not even halfway through, to be honest, we still have to connect with a lot of businesses. And again, it's tough, right? You're, you're going into these businesses that have made their way through, through COVID. Um, and you know, our conversation is just around what's comfortable for you. Um, and, and some businesses just aren't in a position to do that and that's okay. Um, you know, it's, it's for those that are able to, we're certainly appreciative. Um, but we're, we're, individually going out and contacting businesses, reaching out to those that have sponsored us in the past, but we're also exploring new sponsorships. And and part of our information and part of our package is, is making that sponsorship worthwhile. Um, we want to make it so that uh, sponsors see themselves as partners. So we want to make sure that, you know, from everything from ICE logos to, to penalty box logos to advertisement on social media and website, we're looking at online game rosters, a lot of interactive opportunities where we can get businesses out and about because that's a big thing you know for us as an ownership group is we want to help businesses that are helping us so um but again we're we're about halfway through we've connected with a lot but um lots of businesses left to have discussions with so um if you are a business or if you're an organization that's interested in sponsorship um we'll we'll certainly get in touch with you or you know we've been lucky enough some have been in contact with us uh so it's been pretty inspiring and again i really can't thank uh, our sponsors enough it's when it comes to an operating budget, um, sponsorships what what makes this work. It really is so. Um, it's crucial. A lot of different types of sponsorship packages uh, in there too for businesses to uh, consider. And I know, like you mentioned, an online program is being worked on, and I've seen a preview of that. It looks looks fantastic. So looking forward to seeing that. Another element of uh, of the whole thing obviously is uh billets um we talked about the local kids that are here and you know what a dream it is for them but uh for the mariners i think a, a lot of the missions are for these players that come in from away is to send them back home as as better as better players as better human beings and enriching that experience as a yarmouth mariner so uh how important is that for you know you as a coaching staff and you as an owner uh to get that support from billets to help make that happen yeah i Billets are huge, and for me, I'm able to speak to it from a from a different lens, uh, from from two angles actually. I've I've had families open their door to me as a player, and um, I've also my wife and I took in uh, Jordan McKenna a few years ago uh, as a billet. So, really, it becomes your family. It becomes your home away from home, and it becomes your second family. It, it really is. 
um, you know, for, for myself, that experience with, with Jordy, uh, he became, he, he became a son to us. He became a brother to, to my daughters. And, uh, you know, to this day, we're, we're in touch with him. We're following him. We're, we're, uh, we're going up to Dartmouth and staying with his mother, Lisa. So it's, it really does for those that have experienced it, it's, it's a unique and special experience. Um, but it is, it's, it's, it's responsibility too. You're, you're feeding them, you're, you're taking care of them. You're, you know, supporting them because again, they're, you're, you become their family away from, away from home. So, um, we have been so fortunate to to have uh, billets in our community that have that have taken care of kids. We've got, I mean, we've got some folks that have five and six players in their homes. You know, the <laughs> Williamses. We've got Julie, who's taking care of four and five boys a year, um, to name just a couple. So, um, if if you're interested in becoming a billet, we are going to have a post um, go out on our social media and on our website. Um, it, it's it details kind of what the experience looks like. Um, one of the things too, Kevin, with, with billets is we've unfortunately entered a stage where things just cost more. Um, inflation is a reality. So, um, we are upping, um, the commitment to families from 400 to $500 a month. Um, we pay that on the first of every month. Um, and, and it's a, it, again, it's a big commitment and hopefully that includes a long playoff run where we're here for, for several months, but, um, Again, billets, uh, you know, it's, it's so exciting as a, when I was a billet um, to be in the stands and you're sitting with the other billets and you just see the amount of support and love that uh, they have for those kids. And, and it really is you make lifelong connections. Um, I'm still in touch with billets from when I was 17 years old. Um, and you know, you always hear of players coming back to the community to visit from as far as out West and, and down in the States. And, you know, I, I was having a conversation really recently with a former player and said, you know, if you need a place to stay and no, no, I'm, I'm going to stay with <laughs> my billet. Right. So, um, really, really appreciate our billets. We do, we're looking at the neighborhood of probably about four beds this year coming up, um, uh, but we, we'd love to start generating a list of, of potential billets and future billets. Um, and with that too, Kevin is training camp. You know, we, we've got 40 to 50 players coming mm-hmm. in for training camp, which includes some short-term billets days, three, four nights. So, um, just keep an eye out for, for that on our website and social media. Um, and anybody who's, who's interested, um, again, I can't, uh, I can't say enough good things about the experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're looking at it like you said from a couple of different uh, different lenses there. So that's fantastic. And uh, you talk about you know the support of the team, the fifty fifty that every game. Uh, that's another thing you want to mention. I'm sure is uh, that money goes to an education fund for the players, right? It does. Yep. So that's um, and that's something that we really want to communicate and advertise out there. The the funds that we gather through the fifty fifty support the players education fund so um, at the end of every year uh, the goal is to provide every every player um, with a financial commitment to to go towards their education and uh, some 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 uh, post-secondary opportunities and you know part of the part of the presentation we made to the league and it speaks to the success of of both laurie and john and in and the organization we have had a huge list list of players uh, go play hockey um, players playing at Ontario Tech, at York, uh, just to name a few, Royal Military College, and the list goes on and on. Um, so that's very important to us, and, and again, that those funds that are collected through the 50-50 are what enable us to provide some players with some financial support as they explore uh, some some post-secondary options. So that uh, I'm really glad you mentioned that, um, and that's something, obviously, that will continue this year, and uh, it's, it's a great thing to be able to support those kids with what they want to do after hockey. And Jared, finally want to bring up uh, the Mariners Hockey School. It's uh, coming back this year, I think right before uh, training camp begins. So uh, tell us a bit about that and how uh, some minor hockey players can get involved there. Yep, so our hockey school will be taking place uh, August 22nd through 26th. Um, Three age groups, U9, U11, U13. Um, we're looking at about 24 to 30 players per group. Uh, one of the best parts for me, you know, I love seeing Lori and John out there with the kids. It's pretty exciting to have those two, uh, out there and, and coaching. Um, but I love the fact that we have some of our players that have come back early for that. Um, you know, again, we have, we have a huge chunk of players from Newfoundland, actually where Lori is right now. Mm-hmm. Um, we have players from the city, players, um, from, from neighboring provinces. So, 
I love the fact that they come back and uh, and take part in that hockey school. So it will be similar to to the experience of the Ryan Graves camp, which which was an overwhelming mm-hmm. success. Um, there'll be some on ice opportunities with some great coaching. There'll be some off ice opportunities to to build skills and mixed in with just some fun activities for the kids. Um, we have again number of players, but also a number of volunteers that are that are helping us out there. Which, obviously, from the Ryan Graves camp, uh, you realize you can't do without. So, um, information for that is on our, our Facebook page. It's also um, a part of the Yarmouth Minor Hockey page, and it is done in partnership with Yarmouth Minor Hockey. Uh, we wouldn't be able to do it without those folks. You're going to see that big YM logo everywhere, including at center ice this year. Uh, a little bit of a remodel there, so uh, we'll look forward to that. And, uh, yeah, the season is uh, it's coming. It's only a few weeks away. It's hard to believe. It's a few weeks away, um, and it's I'm excited on a number of fronts. Obviously, I really hope that it's, it's the fish tank again. I hope that it's loud. I hope it's a tough building to play in. Um, and having been a part of the, of the bench last year, you really don't understand until you see it just the players looking up into the stands and seeing that that huge wave of folks um so i'm really hoping uh, we can fill the the rink every game this year um but from a hockey standpoint kevin we we have a scary hockey team um just having been a part of it you know part of the league and and knowing what we have coming back um our d is going to be a scary bunch um it's going to be a tough bunch to play against lots of skill lots of size um and we've picked up you know our forwards are, are looking strong. We've picked up some key pieces and, and have some, some key pieces coming back. Um, and goaltending, obviously, we're, we're feeling pretty good with Kristoff uh, coming back, and it'll be a battle for some of those remaining spots. So, um, And again, I, I feel we have, between uh, Lori and John, I think we have, we have the strongest coaching staff in the league. So I'm uh, looking forward to a successful year, and I think the community should too. It's going to be a lot of fun in the first year we've had in three years where things are looking normal, knock on wood, that uh, COVID uh, COVID stays away from us again. Well, thanks so much, uh, Jared Purdy, for coming in and talking more about uh, what's been happening with the Mariners and all sorts of information could be found, as you mentioned, on the Facebook page, uh, Mariners Hockey on Twitter. You can follow that. Um, and, uh, yeah, visit the Mariners Centre box office and find out more about uh, season ticket packages and uh, individual games as well will be coming up soon. So, uh, we'll look forward to that and uh, enjoy uh, enjoy your preparation for the season. We'll be talking again soon. Thanks very much, Kevin. I appreciate it. The Weekender returns in a moment on Y95. Welcome back to The Weekender on Y95. I'm Jacob Postlewaite. Amy Tudor is joining me now. She's a whale-watching guide and photographer with Mariner Cruises sailing from Briar Island. And she joins us today to tell us about a whale that was spotted near Yarmouth, the process to identify it, and about the culture of whale watching here in the area. So thank you so much for joining me, Amy. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to everybody about uh, whales in the Bay of Fun Day. Yeah. Um, yes. I have been a uh, whale watching guide, as you said, with Mare Cruises, Whale and Seabrook for about seven years now. Um, the operation is owned and operated by uh, Penny Graham, who has been on those tours herself. Since uh, 1994, and we sail the Bay of Funday, and we enjoy humpback whales. We may see fin whales, minke whales, every now and then an occasional North Atlantic right whale, and very occasionally an old orca by the name of Old Tom. So there's lots of exciting uh, creatures and adventures when you visit the Bay of Funday. That's awesome. So uh, the reason why one of the reasons why we're chatting today is uh, recently a whale was spotted off Port Maitland Beach, and uh, we reported on it here at Y95. Uh, and uh, you saw what we were doing, and you reached out to us. So uh, yeah, we wanted to chat a little bit about that whale. Certainly, um, I grew up in Yarmouth, so uh, Y95 is a long part of my life. Follow on Facebook, and so what caught my attention on the 195 Facebook page was a photo of a whale pectoral flapping. It's a giant 15-foot fin that it was whacking the water with. But that's not how we can ID whales. We need a photo of the underside of the tail. The underside of that tail fluke is just like a thumbprint or a fingerprint, and it's unique to every whale. So the power, by the power of social media, I had to request both CJLS and left a comment. If anyone's got a tail photo, there's a possibility that maybe 
we can help. We can figure out who this whale is. We were very happy when a tail photo did arrive. It is unfortunately, you know, not as clear as that we get out here with the big zoom lenses, but it was a start. So how we would look to identify whales would be we have whales. Um, those catalogs are created by the Center for Coastal Studies in Maine and another large one uh, with allied whales. Databases are a private database. The general public doesn't have access to them. There is another uh, database that's available to the general public, and it's on happywhale.com, which is where uh, a possible match from the Dominican popped up. These humpback whales that live in the south actually will swim down south for birthing and breeding routines. So we thought we had a match to a Dominican whale, but wasn't quite enough detail in the original photo to make a 100% match. But it's still a very interesting process that whale identification is done shared information. Photographers, scientists, biologists, whale watching guides, by us capturing the underside of the tail and submitting to centralized locations, we can help ID and track the movement of these whales right up and down the sea. Right. That's really cool. I mean, it's it's interesting to uh, that you're able to do that and uh, you're able to work together. Yes. Yeah. We everyone works together in this industry to, you know, help keep track of these whales. These are like our friends. They're individuals. A lot of these whales that we see in the Bay of Funday, we don't need to go to a catalog. When we see a tail, we know who it is right away because there's such a variant of patterns and we see them so frequently that, you know, sometimes it's just like, hey, there's my friend Magpie or there's Badge or there's Sockeye. They become your friends when you watch them year after year. Yeah, I'm sure, you know, with, with, you know, being around them so much and, and just being familiar with them, you know, for the for people, you know, who aren't familiar, they just say, oh, well, this is another whale. But you see them so much, you're so familiar, you're like, oh, I can tell right away. Yeah, and they have personalities. These whales are a lot like people. You know, there's whales out there that when they see the boat, they're waving and slapping. There's whales that are like, nope, I don't want to be watching. They take off and we respect that. Um Keeping the creatures and these animals and these whales as the number one priority has built a very amazing culture of respect both ways, us for them and them for us. And it leads to some of the most amazing whales in Canada, in my opinion. Absolutely. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about, you know, that team effort to identify the whales spotted at Port Maitland Beach. Uh, well, when we're seeing whales, like on our boat, one of us has got the camera and we're taking photos. And then I have a co-worker here, Bethany, who's been aboard the boat for five years now. She's really good. I'll show her the shot I just got from my camera. She's going to go to the catalog and she can see if she can offer, you know, a name for the whale right there for our guests. Now, for the one in Port Maitland first thing I uh, did was put that picture in a, a private group called Fluke Matcher, which is for, you know, whale lovers um, to see if anybody recognized the tail right off. And we did have a possible match from a gentleman who lives in Quebec, but whale watches in the Dominican Republic. And that's where these whales go for their birthing and their breeding. But unfortunately, the uh, tail photo from Yarmouth just wasn't clear enough to give a 100% scientific match. Um, but the whale in Port um, very well could have been that whale who was down in the Dominican as well. So through a Facebook group, connected with someone in Quebec who also has roots in the Dominican, who used the public forum Happy Whale to check. It's all a team effort from the people on the beach. It, it, it takes a group of people to really help track and ID these, these amazing animals. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's just so interesting, you know, the way that, you know, they come together. People are keeping an eye out in this area and how that can relate to, you know, our area here and some of the, you know, how they move around. And, and that leads me to ask, you know, because you think it's pretty, you have a pretty good idea of where this whale might have come from. But uh, I just wanted to ask, do whales and other creatures that start off, you know, in the Dominican Republic, do they find their way up here very often? Yes, absolutely. Our humpback populations, and well, all humpbacks, feed in cold water, rich with krill, plankton, and herring. But because at birth, their young don't have a layer of body fat, that insulation requires blubber. These whales must swim 2,000 miles down south to warm tropical waters for birthing and breeding. So a whale addict, happily like myself, in the summer, I'm sending photos and videos to researchers in the south to let them know how their whales are doing. And then in the winter, I'm watching all their whale-watching pages to see how my whales are doing. So a lot of us true whale addicts will watch social media and Facebook pages and websites, see where our whales are. Well, there you go. That's just more of that, you know, that team effort, even when it comes to, you know, identifying, but also, you know, charting their patterns, where they're going, where they're coming from. It's, it seems like, you know, it's, it takes a whole village to watch a whale. It really does. Yeah. And two hemispheres. Well, that's, that's really cool. Um, and I wanted to also ask, you know, because you've seen, you've been out there, you've seen a lot, uh, and you've mentioned a few, you know, local whales you're familiar with. Uh, did you want to tell us about them? Sure. Um, well, the majority of the whales that we watch are humpback whales. And the reason we watch them is because sometimes they watch us. They are definitely the most curious and sentient sea creatures, or really creatures, um, that I've ever encountered. But we do every now and then see fin whales, second largest creature on the planet, minke whales, right whales, which are Endangered. And every now and then, a very special visitor shows up, who some of the Yarmouth listeners may be aware of, an orca by the name of Old Tom. Now, orcas generally live in pods, organized structures, maternally based. However, Old Tom is all by himself. There are orcas in the Atlantic, but they're much more north. Usually, you know, Newfoundland, Cape Breton. This guy, he's relatively south. And every now and then, three or four times a year, old Tom makes his way into the Bay of Sunday to the delight of whale watchers and boaters. And he is a fan of southwest Nova Scotia. I've had multiple occasions where fishermen 20, 30 miles off southwest Nova Scotia have videos of old Tom swimming next to their boat, you know, very casually hanging out. Um, so he, we haven't seen him yet this year, but I did get sent a video on the 29th of June of old Tom swimming alongside a fishing boat, 20 miles southwest off of Yarmouth. Well, he just loves it down here so much. And I think that's, that's true. You know, for people that come down and visit this area, you know, I, I myself personally, I'm not from here originally, but I've sort of, I've fallen in love with this area and I love this area. People I bring down here. They love it. They love coming around. So he's the same kind of thing. He's a come from away who just who just loves hanging out down here. <laughs> yes, he is. And now every now and then we do see a critically endangered right whale. I'd like to speak on that as a, as a moment. Yes, absolutely. Many, 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 many years ago, 20, 25 years ago, the Bay of Fundy was home to right whales. They were everywhere. The photos from whale watching was right whales. But unfortunately, food, the temperatures of the waters changed, the food supplies changed, and these critically endangered right whales moved into the Gulf of St. Lawrence. The Gulf of St. Lawrence, sadly, is heavily trafficked by humans, uh, industry, and it's just not a safe place for them. But we can't lure them back because the food has gone into the Gulf of St. Lawrence. With less than 400 right whales in the population, and of that 400, only 100 or so breeding-age females, the population is really dwindling. 
And uh, two years ago, um, I had the honor to actually photo capture a mother and calf right whale coming through the Grand Passage in May. So to be on record as the discoverer of the 18th right whale calf of that season is probably one of the highlights of my, uh, my time at sea. Um, and to be able to have laid eyes on a creature that, you know, I don't know that if my grandchildren will ever see one was pretty special. Yeah, it's important to to certainly highlight those those whales, those right whales, and and you know you say they they are indeed endangered. So it's it's important to you know document them and do what we can to support them and help them. Uh, but yeah, that must have been an amazing experience just to just to see those, not just you know, not just to see a right whale, but to see one with their calf as well. That must have just been just amazing to see. It truly was, and again, that finding out the reporting. All that was teamwork again. Um, So, you know, I got the photos, report those photos off to the Canadian Whale Federation. You know, they came back and let me know the whale who I saw was named Lobster, which I think is very fitting for the southwest Nova Scotia area. And they had reported back to me, Moya Brown, who is the head of the uh, Canadian Whale uh, Federation, is let me know that this whale may have actually been born closer to um, colder waters because when we spotted it, it was a little small. Um, Generally, the North Atlantic right whale survey ends in April. So it had ended and they said there's 17. And then when these photos came in in May, it was, you know, very exciting. And they tracked Lobster and her calf up into the Gulf of St. Lawrence and gave me updates along the way. So again, another, you know, how networking really is how this industry and how these whales um, are watched and tracked and, and taken care of, really. Yeah, for sure. It's like I said, you know, takes a village to watch a whale. <laughs> it really does. We were actually out there today. Uh, and I was watching uh, two separate mother-calf pairs. So we are so blessed to be able to be some of the first humans that these baby whales get to, you know, enjoy. So the whale, the baby that I watched today was probably born in January of this calendar year, making it under nine months old. It, the mother swam from the Dominican Republic two months with this little baby while she was nursing because these are mammals. Now that they're up here in the Bay of Fundy and the food supply is everywhere, the mothers are teaching their babies how to feed themselves, the moves, the dives on how to feed themselves so they can wean off. And after the first year, they do separate. These large baleen whales do not live in pods. They are solitary creatures but they'll come together for social gatherings. And the only time that they're like the time bond is that first year of life with mom. So to be able to see a creature in in its infancy in the first nine months of a lifespan that may go 90 years, I consider that an honor. Absolutely. And just as we're wrapping up here, uh, I just wanted to ask you, you know, to tell us a little bit more about, you know, why you find these animals so interesting and and what draws you to this work. Um, The whales, I really, I I have a kind of standing joke that I want to live my life so well that if there is reincarnation, I get back as a whale. I think whales is higher on on the chart than humans sometimes. What captivates me is just watching them do their normal things, a dive, and you see the waterfall coming off the back of their tail. When they lift their fins and they slap the water and it rises. When they breach and there's a splash the size of a couple houses, it's entrancing. But when you do it year after year, they become individuals. And probably one of my most favorite experiences happened two years ago. I was watching a whale by the name of Bayou. And Bayou, when she was three, there was a, she got into a propeller accident or a propeller hit her. And half the tail is mangled and kind of looks like little fingers. 
So she's really easy to identify. You don't need a catalog. As soon as the tail raises, you know it's by you. And she was the first, one of the first whales who I'd seen fart. And yes, whales fart. <laughs> and she was one of the first whales that I saw do that. And just a very friendly whale. She was one of those whales who comes up by the boat, lifts her eye from the water. She makes a point to kind of engage with you. And two years ago, we had a really amazing encounter. She was beside the boat. She was bringing her eye up, and she was laying on her back, and she was just lazily letting her pectoral fin slap, you know, belly out, moving around the boat, making eye contact. Now, I'm not a marine biologist, but I am. I do have a training in uh, behavioral and cognitive psychology, and my read was she's showing off something. What is, you know, she's being a show off. So I was up on the bow and she kind of swam around the boat and brought her head up near where the bow was and looked me in the eye. And I, I talked to whales like you would talk to your dog or your cat, you know, they are sentient. So I talked to her, I was asking her, why are you, are you showing off? You know, what are you showing off? Because there was an older male named Cloud who uh, was just kind of off, not far. He, he was just relaxing on the surface, not doing much. And I thought maybe Cloud was flirting with, I thought maybe Bayou, the whale, was flirting with Cloud. And that experience really stayed with me. It stuck with me. Like, I had this sense that she was showing off. I didn't know what it was. Then I was watching the whale-watching pages of the southern locations, and I see Bayou's tail with a tiny little tail next to it. Bayou was pregnant. Aww. Right. When I saw that tail, that baby tail, literally tears. I'm like, that's what she was showing off. Mm-hmm. And that shows the trust that these whales have in us. That this whale, this that Bayou was upside down, showing off that belly bump right next to the boat. That's and amazing. It was. It made me weep. And unfortunately, I didn't get, I had to miss a month of whale watching last season. Um, I ended up doing, uh, running the provincial election in the Digby area. And it killed me knowing that Bayou and that baby were out there and that I was missing them. I finally got back to sea on August 23rd and we were whale watching and I saw a baby whale and I was excited. I'm like, oh, please be Bayou, please be Bayou. The tail raised, it was the beautiful tail of Bayou. And I'm cheering, Bayou, I love you. And she turns around and she brings, she comes close to the boat with the baby. And again, tears. So that's one of the reasons why I'm a whale addict. Things like that. Well, it certainly seems like, you know, you found your passion. And I want to thank you so much for sharing it with us here today. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me on and allowing me to share the wonders of the whales. We're still sailing. We sail right until the second week in October with Mariner Cruises. And I'm really hoping that maybe this has inspired a few people to come down and uh, experience the joys and wonders that are right in our backyard. Yep, absolutely. Head on down and, and see something amazing. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Jacob. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Amy. I really appreciate you doing this with us. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. That was Amy Tudor. Whale watching guide and photographer with Mariner Cruises. The Weekender returns in a moment on Y95. Welcome back to The Weekender. I'm Ben Holmes. I had a chance to talk with Fito Della Parra. He's the drummer for Canned Heat. He's been with the band for over 50 years and was at Woodstock with them when they performed there in 1969. He also, this past Friday, was in Clare for the Far Out Festival. Fito talks about his time with the band, his love of music, and his desire to try a Nova Scotia Donair. I, I want to start at the beginning if we can. Um... I want to cover a lot of ground, so uh, I'll just jump right in here. And I, I kind of want to start not just the beginning of uh, ground of uh, canned heat, but the beginning of your career itself. You started playing the drums when you were around fifteen, right, in Mexico? Not even even earlier than that, thirteen. Really? So what what kind of drew you to playing the drums? <clears throat> well, I I like music in general. I was mm-hmm. playing guitar, and uh, my father was a big influence on me. He uh. He, we, we grew up, I grew up in Mexico City, right. 
But my dad used to like American culture a lot, especially the music. He used to take me to see movies about jazz uh, players and the, in, for the from the swing era. Okay. So, so I grew up looking at that. You know, for my dad to have fun would be like something like grab me and take me to a movie to see the Glenn Miller story. Okay. Or the Benny Goodman story. All those old movies made in the late fifties. You know, in the mid fifties. And uh, that got me into swing music, which is the beginning, you know. And then later, Bill Haley and the Comets came to Mexico City for the first time. This wow. must have been in the late 50s, you know. And of course, my dad being a fan of all this music and all that, he he was an older guy, but he acted like a young guy, you know. And he he, dragged, he grabbed the whole family and took us to see Bill Haley and the Comets. So this music was uh, starting to affect us a lot. I mean, and change our lives, our the way we talk, the way we dress, the way, you know, the new movies that came out, so Blackboard Jungle, Rebel Without a Cause, all those uh, movies uh, of the era. And, uh, and then, you know, that got me into music. And my father really didn't wanted me to become a professional musician. He right. always said that music was a, a cruel business. And it is. But uh, eventually it happened. I mean, we, he couldn't stop it. And I couldn't stop it later because even one of my teachers, as I was getting my BA, he told me, don't continue on this. He said, you're doing great playing because I was playing already at the time. And he recommended me to continue my musical career and to forget about becoming a dentist or a doctor or something like That's, my father wanted. Right. That's interesting because you hear a lot of a lot of stars and a lot of musicians who are like for years they were told, you know, do something else, do something else. But that's cool that somebody was able to tell you, you know, continue with your dream. That's that's cool. Yeah. And, and especially it was uh, one of my most influential teachers. You know, I was learning. I was uh, learning. As I said, I was getting my B.A. in in, uh, in humanities. And this was my logics teacher. So I was I was studying logics and ethics and sociology and history and all that. But uh, as I say, these guys were very sympathetic to me. I mean, they invited me to play, of course, at the graduation ceremony. You know, right. they wanted to brag about the rock band that they had in the, in the school and all that. But as I said, he he convinced me. You know, he said. He said, you know, you're getting sympathy from us here. We'll give you good grace regardless because we appreciate your talent. He says, but you are not going to get that kind of sympathy at the university. So just forget about going to university and continue playing music. He says, I guarantee you, you are going to do great. He said something very interesting. He said, we make people think because he was a, you know, a philosopher, a, a, a teacher. He says, you guys make people feel. That's much more important. That's a good point. That's a really good point. Now you continued on. You uh, you went on through the the fifties playing music or late fifties into the sixties. And uh, what? So were you when you were a teenager? Did you were you playing more rock or more blues or was it a kind of a mixture of both? Yeah, or? in Mexico, in Mexico City, we were basically copying the top forty American hit parade. Right. You know. I mean, remember, this is the very beginning of this music. I mean, you know, I, I assume Canada and Mexico must have been the two first countries that got in touch with rock and roll or got touched by that music because we are, you know, because of our borders right. with the U.S. So, yeah, that was the beginning. We were playing and we, we uh, I enjoy uh, a lot of success with some of the most famous uh, Mexican rock bands. You know, we were doing translations of the hit parade and 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 our own adaptations and some original rock too i produced a movie called rock and roll made in mexico it's a it's a dvd that is available in our website canheatmusic.com if anybody's interested in the history of mexican rock so that's how we started and then eventually later on in the 60s in the early 60s I became more involved in rhythm and blues music and blues music. And then, of course, I turned my back to the pop thing, even if I was successful and, you know, doing, you know, we were very popular and making good money and all that. I really lost interest in pop music. I saw it too infantile, you know, bubblegum, etc. Mm -hmm. Even if we were infantiles too, you know, right. we were young kids. <laughs> 
Yeah. But we were already already looking for something more deep and more 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 heavy, and that's how I got introduced by uh, an American girlfriend that I had at the time, and also by the guy called Javier Batiz, who was also Carlos Santana's first teacher. Oh, okay. He came. He came. He came from Tijuana and uh, and kind of turned us on into this new style of playing, like BB King, Freddie King, you know, James Brown, or Ray Charles, right? Yeah, all yeah. the blues, rhythm and blues. So once I discovered that kind of music, I uh, I could not go, go into the pop thing anymore. No. I didn't care that the money wasn't there and the recognition was not as as important and all that. Uh, that what mattered was that the music really was heavy and it touched my soul and my heart. And so I dedicated myself to that kind of music. And in a way, it paid off great because eventually, because of my expertise on that music, I was able to get a gig with the Can Heat band. Right. So you didn't start directly with the Can Heat. They started in 65, right? But you were pretty soon after that, right? Yes, I joined uh, uh, towards the end of 1967. Right. The band started in 1965. It was basically uh, two people. It was basically Bob Hyde and Alan Wilson. They started what they they were musicologists and record collectors, and uh, they, they they had a passion for this music, especially the blues. You know, blues and jazz music was basically what they were interested right. in. And uh, so they started the band as a as a jog band just to have fun. They right. they were not professional musicians, as I said earlier. They were musicologists and uh, and record collectors. Uh, so eventually they had a, a few lineups that never materialized into anything, you know, with different different people. And then eventually had the the, the original lineup, let's call it, with uh, the the same people that went to Monterey Pop. Right. With with everybody there except me. I okay. joined shortly after Monterey. So they, they recorded one record. They had one record with the other drummer, with Frank Cook. And, uh, and you know, it was a, a known band around the area and the scene of the blues and all that, but still not popular. Right. Do you think when you first started with that group of guys... Did you know right away, like, wow, we've got something here. We've we've got a good. Oh well, I went to see them because I knew their drummer. I knew their their, right. their, their original drummer. Frank Cook came to see me in Mexico. He came, he saw my band down there and became friends. Uh yes, I knew what they were about. I liked them when I went to see them. I went to see them in this funky place called the Topanga Corral in Topanga Canyon, which is supposed to be one of the first, if not the first hippie colony that ever existed, even before Hyde Ashbury in San Francisco. Right. So I went to see them at the Topanga uh, Canyon and, uh, and, you know, I enjoyed it very much at the Corral. And uh, eventually they, 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 they were having problems with their drummer, with Frank. Frank were, was more jazz oriented and they wanted more uh, harder, more rhythm and blues or blues oriented drummer. Uh, they saw me playing. The, the managers booked a, a gig with my band. I had several. I, I had two or three bands at the time in Los Angeles. I was already here, living here. And uh, and they saw me playing, and then they, they booked a, a, an audition to play with me. First, they saw me playing with my band, and they, they booked an audition. A funny thing, as you asked me if I knew about that, I didn't know how deep they were into it. But on my way to the audition, I stopped by a record store and bought a Junior Wells Body Guy LP, an LP called the Southside Blues at Pepper's Lounge. It's a famous live LP of, of Chicago blues. So I had that record under my arm when I showed up and knocked on the door. Uh, Bob Hyde, the bear, opens the door and looks at me and, and, and you know, and come in, you know, I'm, here I am with my accent, you know, like, hi, I'm Firo for the audition. Uh, I, I was just learning how to speak English properly. And uh, later on, months later, Bob tells me he had already seen me play. I mean, he liked the way he played play, but he said, but there weren't many good drummers around. What got him into accepting me and getting me into the band was that record I had under my arm. Ah. You see, when, when he opened that door and he saw me with that record under my arm, he thought to himself, 
this is the guy for canned heat. Right. He's this got good music taste. That's yeah. right. Yeah. He has his face. I mean, because I, you know, I didn't know. I walk into this house and all of a sudden I turn and there is this thousands of records, thousands of 78s, an incredible collection that I had never seen in my life before. I come here with my humble little LP, you know, right. that I just bought. You know, I and I, I was just telling him I really enjoyed Junior Wells and Buddy Guy, and of course they knew about them. I mean, they had records of them. So that's one of the one of the anecdotes of how I joined Can Heat. That's incredible. No, that's uh, the smallest little thing can change. You know, change your life forever. That's that's yeah, cool. Um, like that. Dude. So I gotta talk. I gotta ask you about um, about Woodstock. This uh, you yeah, guys. You guys went to Woodstock. It's incredible to talk to somebody who was at Woodstock. What was that like? Had you ever seen anything like that before? You were pretty, no, I guess, no, no. No, no, I bet not. Yeah. That was a one time in a lifetime event. I'm uh, very pleased and privileged that had been part of it. I bet. I was there. I was there. I played there. We had a great time. I think, I don't want to brag, but I think we got the biggest ovation of all the other bands. Yeah, I, it was, it was a big... Hearing. Yeah, in the boogie, the, the wow. Woodstock boogie. I, I, the can he was has always been a very good band to play outdoors. Right. You know, we always did great in festivals. Not only that, I honestly believe that we have played more festivals, including biker festivals, blues festivals, and music festivals than any other band on earth. Probably, yeah. Very active. And if you think about 54 years continuously working, with the exception of the last two years because right. of the COVID. Right. So it's like 52 years continuously being on the road. Yeah. I, 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 don't, I cannot think of any other band that has worked as many festivals worldwide yeah. as can he. Yeah, I, and I bet that that outdoor festival put, would have probably been a lot bigger than you guys have been used to, but it would have been a really... Oh, yeah, it, it, it blew my mind the moment yeah. I dropped on the helicopter. <laughs> You know, I don't know. You know, I don't know if you ever read my book, but I tell the whole story about Woodstock right. from the moment I woke up until the end. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't have the time to really repeat all the details, but right. basically, initially, I didn't want to go, and I was pretty much forced to go by my mm -hmm. manager because uh, I was tired. We had we, we having some problems. We we lost a guitar player a few days before, and Harvey Mandel has just joined the band, so. I didn't know what Woodstock was. I didn't. I didn't even care. Right. But my manager comes into my room and says, "Turn the radio on. Turn the TV on. Look at that. There is half a million people there. Wow. This is going to be the biggest gig you ever play." Yeah. So anyway, he convinced me to go, and you know, eventually we made it. Right. Did you? I'm sure you get to. Did you get to meet Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, people like that? Everybody there. Not at Woodstock. No, that works. I got okay. I got to meet Jimi Hendrix in Los Angeles once. We went to see Earl Hooker, okay. one of the greatest bottleneck players. Uh, we were in a place called the, the Image, uh, which was a, a club in Los Angeles that didn't last too long. It was it was by the same owner that owned the, the Image in Florida, in Miami. Anyway, <laughs> so so yes, and uh, I, I was at the Image. Uh, I went to see Earl Hooker, but. By accident, I happened to be sitting down right next to Jimi Hendrix. Wow. And that was great. We we talk a little bit. I must say he was high, you know. Right. <laughs> so yeah. he was not really talking that much. But, uh, but you know, we were really, really listening to Earl Hooker. That's really what we right. were there for. We were right. not there to talk about our bands. Or, right, right. Or right. to know, you know, hey, I know you, blah, blah, blah. Right. We were immersed immersed totally with the genius of Earl Hooker. I bet. And yeah. so that's the time I met Jimi Hendrix. I met Janis Joplin at the Texas Pop Festival on our way to the stage, on our way to the stage they, in the same bus. I sat there next to her. You know, we said hello a little bit, and, and that was it. Not much more. You know, we're already in our mid-70s, and uh, we just cannot be doing those kind of gigs that we were doing, you know, going three times to Europe a year and doing, you know, two-month-long tours and stuff like that. So we are going to start being a little more careful as to 
how many how many geese we played. No, that's uh, that's incredible. Well, listen, I I really appreciate this. And uh, when you come to Nova Scotia, um, make sure to uh, try. There's a there's a dish here called the Donair. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's this it's this. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm writing it down. How yeah, a D O N A I R Donair. And uh, it's something you got to try. It's only in Nova Scotia. It's like a, a sort of a, uh, it's, it's cool. It's, it's good. Just try it. <laughs> Is that a fish? It's not a fish. It's like, uh, it's like meat. It's like a pita wrap with a special sauce. It's really good. Oh. Pe- people love it here. So okay. try I, that. I wrote it down. I'm going to, I'm going to write it down and I'm going to put it on my itinerary page. Perfect. This is for the gig at the end of the month, right? Right, yeah, yes. yeah, in Claire. So, yeah, well, uh, I'll, yeah, I'll... I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to go way north out there. And, and it's going to be reminding me of the time we were there many years ago. I bet. Yeah, it's going to be great. Well, thank you so much, Vito. And uh, you have a great, great tour. And uh, be well. Take care, brother. Yeah, that was Fito de la Parra, the drummer for Canned Heat, who were just in the area for the Far Out Festival in Claire. And that's our program for today. Thanks for listening. For story suggestions or to submit feedback, email news.cjls at radioabl.ca or call our news line at 902-749-1919. To listen to archived versions of our program, visit us online at cjls.com and click on The Weekender. The Weekender is a production of the Y95 Newsroom and is brought to you by Eris Yarmouth, your one-stop healthy home center.